0: So this evening is September 19th. It is 2012. We're going to begin our our service in the 17th chapter of Genesis. And uh, the title, if you are the note-taking kind, is called Bar-Naba. Bar-Naba. B-A-R, second word, Naba, N-A-B-A. I'll explain that as we go. Tell me when you're in Genesis 17. Genesis 17, starting in the first verse. When Abram was 99 years old. We don't have anybody in here 99, right? So we're we're safe to say 99 is old, huh? He could just say when Abraham was 99 years, because old is unnecessary. Like to say when Abram was 99 years old is almost redundant. 99 is getting up there. When Abram was ninety-nine years old, the Lord appeared to him and said, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless. I will confirm my covenant between me and you and will greatly increase your numbers. Abram fell face down and God said to him, As for me, uh, this is my covenant with you. You will... Be the father of many nations. No longer will you be called Abram. Your name will be Abraham. For I have made you the father of many nations. He goes on to say other wonderful things about kings coming from him and a whole nation. What an amazing God we serve that could look at a man who is how old? 99 years old. And tell him, your name is right now Abram, but I'm changing it to Abraham, the father of many nations. At this point, Abram had one son who was the product of a disastrous sinful relationship that plagues us to this day. Uh, Watch the news about the Middle East and you'll put those two things together. He had been walking with the Lord 24 years. He had left uh, Ur of the Chaldees 24 years earlier. God had promised him an heir and for 24 years he had been faithful uh, to a large extent and he had not seen this promised son come forth. And now God is saying at 99 years old he would be the father of many nations and kings would come from him. What an amazing, miraculous promise. We hear these things all of the time and they become churchy to us. We're like, Father Abraham... Had many sons and many, many oh, sons no. had Father Abraham, right? So we grow up singing this stuff, and you forget that it was a real person, right? Like, let's, let's, not, uh, let's not make this uncomfortable. We'll pick uh, JJ, right? So <laughs> JJ just had, and see, that won't be uncomfortable for me. it would be uncomfortable <laughs> for JJ. JJ just had a beautiful little girl, right? Emily, right? I had not got a chance to see anything but a picture yet. Uh, but just had Emily. So, uh, JJ, how old are you? Thirty-four, right? So I don't know, JJ. Why don't we wait, say, why don't we wait, say, seventy years, or why don't we just say another, I don't know, seventy years? Would you like to have another one about that age? Probably doesn't fit in your retirement plans, Bob. Are, are you leaning towards having children,
1: Bob? How old are
0: you? At 57, you're done? Why? I mean, Abraham was 99 when God said he's going to have a whole nation. Come on, Lynette, what's wrong? Y'all don't want to step up? We're building a whole new so children's bad. church back there, Steve. Steve, you want some more children? Yeah. <laughs> 99 years old. And God calls him the father of many nations. That's kind of audacious, isn't it? I mean, that's just jumping right out there in a big conspicuous manner. For the whole world to say, I have just said something that most people would think is impossible. You know I else uh, is here? In the first couple of verses, God Almighty. Did you see that word? Mm-hmm. God Almighty. The Hebrews have an interesting way of saying this. It comes down to us as El Shaddai. Uh, now, in Hebrew, the word She it means Who. It's very difficult to learn Hebrew. You know, you you see you see the pronoun Who, and you have to say She. Him is, a, is another one. <laughs> I mean, there are English words that mean something different in Hebrew. Of course, Hebrew came first. So, it, she in Hebrew means who? Day means enough. El Shidei or Shaddai means the God who is enough. So, God makes this incredible, boastful, amazing, outlandish promise. And he calls himself the God who is enough to pull it off. This is the God we serve. It's an interesting thing because all of our faith depends on God making outlandish, outrageous promises. And then you trust Him, He's enough to pull them off. How many of you believe God can do anything? Come on, get your hands up. If you don't, then you can go join the Buddhist temple back here. Can, can God do anything? Yes. Yes. Can He do anything in your life? Yes. See, we're very quick to say God can do anything. But then, when it comes down to using us, I don't know, Lord. I'm 99. You know, my wife's getting up there too. We've been working at this 24 years. We uh, we hadn't produced anything except some problems, right? You you ever felt like that? Like maybe God's word's true for the Hutchinsons, but probably not for you. Maybe God's word's true for the the Hewitt family, but but not not for you. This is a problem that plagues Christianity. We all believe everything about God as long as it does not touch our personal lives. Tonight, I want to hop right into our personal lives. Turn to Isaiah 42. Tell me when you're there. In Isaiah 42, look at verse 9. See, the former things have taken place. And new things I declare. Before they spring into being, I announce them to you. The former things have taken place. New things I declare. Past is past. I'm going to declare something to you new. Before it springs into being, God announces it. This is one of the ways that He proves who He is. He can tell you what's going to happen before you can perceive it. Everybody agrees with this, right? God can say 430 years your descendants will be enslaved and mistreated in Egypt and then I will deliver them into the promised land. God can say three days and three nights and I will raise my son. God can say, God can say, God can say. But why is it that when it comes down to our lives and God calls you to be more than you are today, we have so much trouble believing it. Right? Lord, you don't know that I'm struggling with this. Well, of course you know he does. But Lord, I, I'm I'm the weakest in my clan. Lord, I'm I'm, I'm not all that educated. Lord, I'm, 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 I'm. Our God announces things before they spring into being. Why? Because when He makes bold, audacious, outlandish promises, and then they come true, everybody goes, He's the God who is enough. He's El Shaddai. It's the revelation of the character of God that says, He is enough. He's bigger than your problem. He's bigger than your limitation. He doesn't need a certain number of fish to feed a crowd. He just needs some obedience. Mm. Our God is enough. I find it funny that He prides Himself in announcing potential before others see it. By the time you get to Isaiah 44, the 7th verse, it says this, Who then is like me? It's God speaking, by the way. Who then is like me? To which the answer is... I don't know. (laughs) Let him proclaim it. (laughs) Speak up if you think you're like God. Let him declare it and lay it out before me. What has happened since I established my ancient people and what is yet to come? Yes, let him foretell what is to come. Do not tremble. Do not be afraid. Did I not proclaim this and foretell it long ago? You are my witnesses. Is there any God besides me? No, there is no other rock. Look at this next phrase. I know not one. <laughs> Isaiah 44, 8 says God doesn't know anybody like God. <laughs> Isn't that great? I mean, you got to love a creator that can ask his creation. You ever seen anybody like me? Take a good look. Come on, take it all in. You seen anybody like me? Because I don't know anybody like me. <laughs> I mean, this is the same God that looked at Job and goes, Have you an arm like God? <laughs> I mean, what do you say to something like that?
1: God is showing off.
0: He's boasting. And what is he boasting in? He's boasting in his ability to take something little and do amazing things with it. He's boasting in his ability to take an old man and spring up a nation. He's boasting in his ability to take weak, fallible, ordinary, broken men and do extraordinary things. And he rejoices that he can announce it. He can pick them he can say, in Cody's life, you watch, something is going to come that is great. He can announce it before you can see it, so that if it happens, all you can do is stand back and go, El Shaddai. He is more than enough. Amen. This is the revelation of who El Shaddai is. In Isaiah 41, look at the 22nd verse while you're there. God has a bit of a sense of humor. You know, He talks smack, so to speak, in the heavenly realm. He is mocking other gods. Watch this. Bring in your idols. Tell us what is going to happen. Tell us what the former things were so that we may consider them and know their final outcome or declare to us the things to come. Tell us what the future holds so that we may know that you are gods. Do something, whether good or bad, so that we will all be dismayed and filled with fear. But you are less than nothing and your works are utterly worthless. He who chooses you, is detestable. This is God speaking about idols. I mean, he's basically looking at all the lesser gods of the world, the demonic powers, and he said, come on, speak up if you can do anything. Anybody want to step forward? Look, I've just announced it. Anybody want to challenge? Come on, do something. Step forward, backward, good, bad, anything. Come on, let's hear it. Resounding silence in the heavens. Nobody worthy to open the scrolls until the Lamb of God came. Amen. None who is like Him. None who is enough until the Lamb of God came. Amen. This is an open challenge in the heavens. Is there a single entity out there that can take the ordinary and do the extraordinary? Is there anyone out there that can take the dry, broken, and dead and fill it with life so that the whole world can see it? And there is silence in heavens. I love a God like this. He's bold. He's in your face. He's absolutely laying it on the line. It's kind of like when Elijah stood in God's stead and he taunted, taunted the 450 prophets to man the master. You know, they said, "Hey, uh, maybe your God's sleeping or on the potty. I think he can't hear you. Shout louder. Cut yourselves." You know. I mean, it's great because it's completely unintimidated by what the world says. Could we say this about our lives? Are we so convinced that our God is enough that we're completely unintimidated by the world? Or ladies, do you still think you're not pretty enough? Do you think you're not skinny enough? I never met a woman who was skinny enough or pretty enough in her own eyes. Guys, are you still successful enough? Do do you, have you provided all that you should provide? Do we let the pressures of the world tell us who we are? Or can we smile and say God is enough? He's able to perform what He's promised. Do we waver through unbelief? Or can we stand on the promise of God even as it relates to us? Mm-hmm. Isaiah 46.10 says it this way. i give you a second to get to that one. Yeah. Yeah. I make known the end from the beginning. From ancient times, what is still to come, I say my purpose will stand, and I will do all that I please. From the east, I summon a bird of prey. From a far off land, a man to fulfill my purpose. What I have said, that I will bring about. What I have planned, that will I do. The Lord is very intentional. He speaks here over 200 years, two centuries before he calls a man named Cyrus forward to do his will in causing His people to re-enter the land of their promise. But it's not just about Cyrus. He's intentional about His will for your life. He plans it, and He says, I will accomplish it. By the time we get to Psalm 138, 8, He says, the Lord will fulfill His purpose for me. Our God makes plans for your life. Every life in here has a purpose. The purpose is bigger than you if it was something that was within your grasp something that everybody would go oh well well obviously then we wouldn't have room to say god is enough you would be enough so the plan is by necessity bigger than you are it's immeasurably more than you could ask for or imagine oh that we might grasp the heights and depths of god's love for us as we begin to to venture out to believe that he has a purpose, not for everybody else, not for mankind, not for the nations, but for you specifically, it brings us to a whole other set of questions. How do I find that purpose? How do I walk in it? How, how, How did Abraham find his purpose and walk in it? God gave him a revelation of what it was, but how does he walk in it? Could Abraham do anything to make this come about? nothing. He wasn't already doing it. He's already trying to have children and it's not working. What could he do? He could just trust God despite every other thing. Sometimes, friends, you don't have to strain at your purpose. Sometimes no more work, no more effort will cause it. You simply trust God for it every day and look forward to it, though it lingers. Come on now. Is that not preached to anybody in here? God birthed you for a purpose. I'd like to tell you that Psalm 57, the second verse says, I cry out to the Most High God who fulfills His purpose for me. Who brings the purpose about? Who fulfills it? God does. You know, when most of the major covenants in Abraham's life were made, you know where he was? He's asleep. God put him to sleep. He put him to sleep and then he walked through the pieces of the sacrifice to show that it would rely upon God and not upon Abraham. We love Abraham. He was faithful. But what does it mean to be faithful? It means simply to trust Him. It never meant Abraham had the power to perform anything that had been promised to him. He simply trusted the one who did. So I ask you, church, do you trust God even for the promises in your life, or do you only trust Him for other people's promises? Anybody in here zig when they should have zag? Steph, you ever messed up? Come on, I'm pretty proud of Steph. We renamed her Smiley, right? That's a profound statement. When she came in this church, that was not what she was best known for. But God so changed her nature that universally we began to refer to her as Smiley. This is the power of the God we serve. Now, what we like to think is, well, God saved Smiley, so now Smiley's good, you know? But I bet... She's had an off day or two. And none of you have since you've been born again, right? I mean, it's, it's just me that still wakes up on the wrong side of the bed and the earth sometimes, right? What about Philippians 1 3? Come on now. He who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. Do we really have faith in that? Or do we think that you. Oh, it's 1 6. I had a correction back there. Look. Is it not written? <laughs> he who began a good work would be faithful to me. One, three is I thank my God every time I think of you. Huh? Yeah, I don't know what's wrong with me. So listen, again, we misstep sometimes. Will not the God of the universe have the power to perform what He wants to in your life? Your obligation is to trust Him despite all the evidence you've provided Him that you can't do it. Huh? Come on now, there should be an amen out amen. there. Amen. I'd like to look at a man named Moses. You know the story, so I won't belabor it long. I'll get some, some others that you may not know. But Moses is such a good example. In the second chapter of Exodus, get there. Let us start in verse 5. Then Pharaoh's daughter went down to the Nile to bathe, and at her as her attendants were walking along the riverbank, she saw a basket among the reeds and sent her slave girl to get it. She opened it and saw the baby. He was crying and felt sorry for him. She named him Moses, saying, I drew him out of the water. One day, after Moses had grown up, he went out to where his own people were and watched them at their hard labor. He saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his own people, glancing this way and that, and seeing no one, he killed the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. Let us think about this for a second. We have a man who was abandoned by birth. He was adopted by a slave-owning servant, slave-owning master, who didn't take the time to nurse him, paid somebody else to do it. And all we know about Moses' adult life is that he became a murderer. Now one way to look at this story is that God loved Moses so much that when his mother gave him up in faith into the waters of the Nile, uh, God brought him faithfully into the hands of someone who would take care of him and then was kind enough to bring his own mother as the wet nurse and she got paid for it. And that's the way we present it. But have you ever known a teenager? (laughs) They don't tend to see things that way, do they? I could see Moses at about 13 going, my mom didn't love me. She threw me into the water, right? And by the grace of God, I landed in the reeds. And Pharaoh's daughter who's taking care of me, she farmed me out to a Hebrew midwife, right? I'm growing up disaffected and without my people. Then he gets into a situation where he's so filled with injustice. Look at what's happening to my people. He results to murder. Is this a great start for a man's life? Would you pick a man like that to deliver a nation? But see, the God who is enough, He can speak to a man like that and say, Moses, I'm going to use you to deliver Israel. Turn with me then to uh, the third chapter, the seventh verse. The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying and because of their slave drivers. And I am concerned about their suffering. Isn't it good to know God is concerned about suffering? So I have come down. One of my favorite things. I have seen. So I have come down. To rescue them from the hands of the Egyptians. And to bring them up. We serve a God who comes down because of our suffering. He's concerned about it. He rescues us and brings us where? Uh, Up. I love this about the direction in the scripture. Out of that land and into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the home of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me, and I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now go, I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? Isn't this exactly what we say when God presents us with a future that's bigger than us? Mm -hmm. Lord, who am I? Was it ever about who we are though? It was about El Shaddai. It was about the God who is enough. And if you are not very big, who gets to make up the difference? God does. Are you into to a little room for God to be glorified? We say to him, be all the glory, right? What if it means you need to be very small? What if it means you need to be weak? What if it means that you're incapable of doing it on your own? What if it means you have to trust someone to be Lord? You can't be it yourself. That's really hard, huh? And do we have no self-sufficient brothers and sisters out there? Come on now, I know you. I mean, we want to trust God as long as we can also do it all ourselves. Some of you cannot even let another human being drive, right? You just can't do it because you need to be in control. Some of you could never let somebody else buy your meal because you're a man and that just did not happen. You buy your own meals. What if God wanting to be glorified in the difference between you and Him puts you in the situation of need? put you in a desperate situation to show that He's enough and you never were. How do we feel about that one? But we're not raising our hand to uh, to accept that task, are we? But all of Christianity is about getting in trouble, in, over your head, calling on His name and He delivers you so that the world sees He's a rescuing God. He's a delivering God. A God who sees more potential in a human being and announces it beforehand than anybody else ever saw or knew was there. Now, that's good news if you're a wreck. That's good news if you're broken like me. It might mean that if somebody says, you know, Eric Stevens, you should probably go get a lawnmower. Maybe your wife could clean people's houses. That's that's about what you're capable of. There might be a God who believes we were capable of just a little more. Despite all of the evidence to the contrary, I stood in a man's house in the Country Club of Louisiana who told me that. Those of you that don't know what that is, it's a gated community where governors lived, right? My car was leaking oil on his driveway outside. (laughs) Yeah, I was that guy. And he, from the best of his uh, ability to estimate my potential and my life, this is what he saw. He wasn't trying to be hurtful. He assessed my education, he assessed my abilities, we talked for a while, and then he prophesied to me.
1: <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> Praise God he was wrong, right? <laughs> but see, it's one thing when somebody else does that to you. It's got a way of kind of going, you know what, buddy, I will show you. But what happens when you've begun? What happens when you have begun to believe that you're just really not capable of that much? Maybe somebody else should do it. See, because this is kind of where Moses is. Moses is kind of in the place where, you know, he really wishes God would choose somebody else. Look at the fourth chapter and tenth verse. Moses said to the Lord, by the way, Moses has just been shown three outstanding miracles. And he's speaking with God via a burning bush. Uh, Anybody in here ever seen a burning bush that uh, was God anyway? Uh, Ever had an extended conversation with God to where you could argue with Him? In that conversation, did God show any of you three outstanding miracles? Can you imagine being in this position? How low does your self-esteem have to be that you're talking with God and you say this? Moses said to the Lord, O Lord, I have never been eloquent, neither in the past nor since you have spoken to your servant. I am slow of speech and tongue. The Lord said to him, Who gave man his mouth? Who makes him deaf or mute? Who gives him sight or makes him blind? Is it not I the Lord? Now go. I will help speak, help you speak and will teach you what to say. Look at Moses' response. But Moses said, Oh Lord, please send someone else. Is that a man who's defeated? But he's talking to the God who is enough. The reality is, if I tell you right now, this second, hey, stand up and finish this message, very few of you are going to leap from your seat and go, oh, praise God, I was waiting for that, and run to the front. Your very first thought is, but I can't. Why is he not enough? And we have the same result when we are challenged to do anything daring for the Lord. But but I can't. I mean, Lord, do you know who you're asking to do this? That's why he asked you. Because the greater disparity between your ability and the end result, the more glory there is in it for him. So your calling will always be bigger than you. It should surprise even you that it comes about. In addition to this extended complaint, after this extended complaint, look at the 12th chapter. I just want to show you something that you already know but it's worth dwelling on for just a second. 12th chapter, 50th verse. All the Israelites did just what the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron. And on that very day, the Lord brought the Israelites out of Egypt by their divisions. Uh, What did God send Moses to Egypt to do? Bring out the Israelites. Did Moses think he could do it? But he did, didn't he? Was it because Moses suddenly got smarter? Suddenly got more eloquent? Suddenly got more capable? Then how did Moses do it? It would always be the Lord doing it. He simply needed Moses to trust Him. It's no different in our lives. What the Lord has said to you will come about because the Lord will fulfill His purpose in your life. All He needs you to do is trust Him. He never needed your bank account. He never needed your intellect. He never needed your good looks. He never needed any of those things that the world relies on. He needed you to trust Him. And let's face it, trust is never really tested if you can see the outcome, is it? So this is where Christianity finds ourselves. We find ourselves in a situation like Moses where we're told something as simple as we're the light of the world. We're told something as profound as... Anybody who believes in me will do greater things than I've been doing. And you know what? We go, we believe your word, Lord. Verbal, plenary, inspiration, every syllable. Woo! It's all you. But you want me to do it? Mm-hmm. Uh, I can. Lord, mm-hmm. maybe, maybe Kelly. She's got great faith. But not, not not me. He needs us to trust Him. Even in our own lives. Yeah, There's a better question. What happens if you don't do it and it was your purpose? Hmm? So we have a spot on cleaning crew that's open, right? I'm not trying to get you to sign up for cleaning crew. It's an example. A spot on cleaning crew that's open. What happens if it's not filled? Something goes undone, doesn't it? Do you really think it's different in the kingdom? Do you really? It never depended upon you. It only depends upon your ability to trust Him. But if we will not trust Him, you know what He does? He cuts off a branch and He grafts another in its place. Yeah. Because in the end, the wedding hall will be filled. In the end, the branches will bear fruit. In the end, God's purpose will stand. He will not be mocked. In the end, it will work as He has said. The question is, will, be, will we be a part of what God is doing? I want to encourage you, church. I want to encourage you to rise to the occasion. I want to tell you that God picked you because of your deficits and not because of your great strengths. I want to remind you of men like Jacob. What was Jacob's great, great state, if you will? I mean, what high position in life was Jacob in when God changed his name to Israel? It's the 32nd chapter of Genesis. And in the 32nd chapter of Genesis, just to give you a refresher, the 7th verse says, Jacob was in great fear and distress. Why was he in fear and distress? Because he had sinned against his brother Esau, and now Esau is coming to see him. Right? Do you think Jacob knew how weak Jacob was at that moment? He was so fouled up in his thoughts, he said, you know what? I got all these women and children here, let's separate into two groups. Put the ugly ones over there, and the pretty ones over there, and throw somebody out from Okay, so I added a little bit to that.
1: He actually
0: just separated them. We don't know what the standard was. And then he sent two more groups ahead of them. Ambassadors to go meet Esau. Ambassadors with bribes. And he said, say to my brother, uh, Jacob has sent me with these, and uh, he's awaiting you. And stagger your group. So that then the second group appears after the first group and says, Jacob, your brother, sent you these gifts. This is the state the man is in. He's all alone at the ford of the Jabbok. He's in great fear and distress. He has separated his family into two categories. I don't know who made the cut and who didn't. And then he sent two bands of emissaries to go meet with Esau. And guess what God does for him? He meets with him and says, You're no longer a deceiver, a supplanter. You're a prince with God. Well, obviously, right? He was acting like one. But this is what God does. God looks at a man and he sees a potential that nobody else could find That would not be obvious to any other human being. And he says, that guy, that guy, I will glorify my name through. Come on, friends. That is our story as much as it's his. How about Jephthah? Some of you don't know who Jephthah is, and if you do know who Jephthah is, you remember how uh, he made a rash vow. But what's more important about Jephthah's life is in the 11th chapter of Judges, Jephthah was the son of a prostitute. Right? I mean, that's what everybody wants to be known for, huh? Yeah. He's the son of a prostitute, but his mama, uh, I'm sorry, his daddy, had a wife. And it turns out that his half brothers didn't like him very much so they ran him out of the house Jephthah was an outcast he was a social pariah and yet God chose him to save his nation from the Amorites is that who you would have chosen but he does things like that doesn't he how about Gideon in the 6th chapter of Judges you know this story we don't have to read it in the 6th chapter starting around the 6th verse Midian is oppressing Israel to such great extent that they've impoverished them And where is Gideon? Gideon is in a wine press, but he's not making wine. He got the Southern Baptist prohibition on it. He decided not to do it. I'm kidding. He's sitting in a wine press because it has high walls. And he can hide in it. And he's threshing wheat. If he threshed wheat out on the threshing floor, it'd be out in the open and everybody could see it. But Gideon is hiding like a coward threshing wheat. And an angel shows up, and you know what the first thing the angel says to him is? Mighty warrior." Obviously. Because this is how all mighty warriors handle themselves, right? But it seems that God can announce something before it springs into being. So that you will know He is God. Amen. Right?
1: Amen.
0: Gideon, just like Moses, tries to dissuade him, Do you know that I am the weakest in my clan? In my clan, Manasseh is not a very strong clan. So... They're kind of the bottom, and I'm the bottom of the bottom. Right? <laughs> you know that, right? I mean, you're, you're speaking for God. You know that, huh? And the angel called him mighty warrior. Only one other person in the book of Genesis called mighty warrior. Did you know that? You'd think the whole book would be that. You know who it was? Jeff. Yeah. See, God picks the most unlikely people, the most unlikely people, and he calls out of them something that nobody knew was there. Similar things can be demonstrated in a woman named Hannah's life. Y'all know that. Could similar things be said about David's life? I mean, he didn't even show up for the roster. How about Mordecai, Hadassah, or Esther, if you like? And most of the saints extolled in Scripture all have these similar characteristics. But I wanted to pick some New Testament folks just so that it might make a, a little different impact on you. Turn with me to Matthew. Is that okay? Okay. So Matthew says it's okay to turn to Matthew. He has a little vested interest in it. What about the rest of you? Is it okay? So what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to get you to speak in church. I'm trying to get you to not sit on your salvation and go into a dull glaze so that you can wake up for a sitcom later this evening. I'm trying to get you to get a little bit excited about the Word of God. Anybody love Jesus out there? Yeah. Yeah. Come on now. That's what I'm talking about. Here comes Matthew 16, starting in verse 15. But what about you, he asked. Who do you say I am? Isn't that an interesting question? (laughs) This kind of goes back to Moses, doesn't it? Who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by man, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you, that you are Peter. You have a footnote there anybody? Yes. You are a rock. And on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Now, when we think about this, out of all the people Jesus could pick to call a rock, not Dwayne Johnson. <laughs> Cephas. I mean, by the time we get to the 23rd verse in this chapter, Jesus says, Get behind me, Satan, to the very same man. One chapter before this, in the 15th chapter, 16th verse, Jesus looks at Peter and says, Are you still so dull? That's a really nice way that our translators clean it up. It means, it, uh, Are you still stupid? And by the 26th chapter of Matthew, what did Peter do three times? Come on now. Can you smell what the rock is cooking? (laughs) Stupidity? Rebellion? uh, Cowardice? But he's a rock, right? Can you smell what the rock is cooking? That's what the kids are saying these days, right? A big wrestler stands up and he says this, and everybody cheers. Jesus called this man a rock. And in three places in Scripture all around it, we have rebellion we have stupidity and we have cowardice. Is this the kind of man you build a Churchill? Probably not the man I could choose, huh? I mean, not the guy you'd want to run for your party for president, is it? Huh? Am I lying? No. So, what is it that Jesus sees in him? How is it that Jesus could do something like this? You know, as I began to look into this, I found. A really neat thing. I took a Bible concordance. I use those an awful lot. And I put two words into it. Then, T-H-E-N, Peter. That's not a particularly profound search term, is it? I mean, this is not Bible code. It's not Geometra. You don't need a supercomputer to do it. You wouldn't expect to find anything really revelatory with the word then, Peter, would you? What's the history book of the church? Acts of the Apostles. Would you believe that ten times in the Book of Acts, the words "then Peter" show up, and in all ten instances, we find something. Watch this. Acts two fourteen. Then Peter stood up with the eleven. He raised his voice and addressed the crowd, "Fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say." These men are not drunk as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. No, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. You know what I say? Rock. This guy stood up to a whole nation at the outpouring of the Holy Ghost and he acted like a rock. Acts 3.4 Peter looked straight at him as did John. Then Peter said, look at us. The man gave them his attention expecting to get something. What Holy Ghost tenacity this took. He's like a rock. Acts 3.6 Then Peter said, Silver and gold I do not have, but what I have I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ, walk. Rock. Are you kidding me? These are the strongest things human beings can do. Acts 4.8 then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers and elders of the people, If we are being called into an account today for an act of kindness shown to a crippled and are asked how he was healed, then know this: you and all the people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. Rock, church. What a rock. Acts 5:3. Then Peter said, "Ananias, how is it that Satan so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land? You know the end of this story. You have lied to God. Come on now. Holy Ghost tenacity, a rock." Acts 18, Acts 8:17. 8, then Peter and John placed their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit, come on, first time the Holy Ghost had been poured out in Samaria, a rock. Acts ten twenty three. Then Peter invited the men into his house to be his guest. The next day Peter started out with them and some of the brothers from Joppa went along. The following day he arrived in Caesarea. Cornelius, expecting them, had called together his relatives and close friends. As Peter entered the house, Cornelius met them and fell at his feet in reverence. But Peter made him get up, stand up. I am only a man myself. Come on, a man that admits when he's wrong. A man that will not accept praise from another man. A rock. Acts 10.34 Then Peter began to speak. I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts men from every nation who fear Him and do what is right. You mean a man that could take 40 plus years of his own experience and say, I'm a leader in the church. I'm an example to everyone. And I'm telling you, I was wrong. That's a rock. Come on, church. That is the kind of behavior that is a rock. Acts 10.46 While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit came on all who heard the message. The circumcised believers who had come with Peter were astonished that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles, for they heard them speaking in tongues and praising God. Then Peter said, Can anyone keep these people from being baptized with water? They've received the Holy Spirit just as we have. This man stood and declared to a whole Jewish nation that a Gentile who had never kept the law was equal to them in God's eyes. A rock, friends. Does this sound like the actions of a coward? Does it sound like the actions of a man who was stupid? A man who was bent on rebellion? Everything that Peter was when God called him changed because God called him. Acts 12, 11. Then Peter came to himself and said, Now I know without a doubt that the Lord has sent His angel and rescued me from Herod's clutches and everything the Jewish people were anticipating. He's the kind of man that trusted God could get him out of a jail cell when nobody else could. A rock. Amen. This leaves only one thing to say. Jesus can make a rock out of you. Mm. He will rock you. (laughs) I'm not quoting Freddie Mercury except a little bit. You have to love this. God takes a man that he has to call stupid, a man that he has to rebuke as speaking for Satan, a man who denied his very existence three times, but he so pours his power, his love, his life, his compassion into it that in ten different ways in the book of Acts, He is a rock. Which is, of course, exactly what Jesus called him to be, isn't it? Did Gideon become a mighty warrior? Did Jephthah become more than a prostitute's son? Did Moses become more than an inarticulate coward? Come on, did Abraham become more than a dry old stone? Mm. They all became more than they were because God called it out of them. This leads me to a couple conclusions. The first is we cannot categorize people by their failures. If you do, you miss out on the rock star that Peter became. Because you only ever see him one way. You see him as the guy Jesus called stupid. You see him as the guy who spoke for Satan. You see him as the guy who denied Jesus not once or twice, but three times. And instead, he was a rock star in God's eyes. It means that in men like Thomas's life, what do we call Thomas? What kind of Thomas? Thomas? Of course, John 20, 28, he's the very first person in all of the Scripture to say, my Lord and my God. How do you think God will remember him? Do you think God will call him Doubting Thomas on that day? Or do you think he will go down in history as the man who first said, my Lord and my God? Do you really think God is so small as to define you by your failures? How could you even remember such a thing? They're everywhere. There's nothing unique. Do you really think you've blown it worse than the rest of humanity? I'm not saying you should measure yourself against them and see yourself as better than them. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying, do you really think that you are so special in your sinful appetites that in some way you've outdone everybody else? See, he knew you were disease stock when he picked you. He knew you were broken because He knew your daddy and your daddy's daddy and He knew him all the way back to Adam and we all come from the same nest of bunch. He didn't pick you because you were a failure. He picked you because when He speaks to a man, He can make him a success. Mm-hmm. This led me to a second revelation. One is we are not defined by our failures. The second is we need to be a little bit more like God. We need to have His mind and learn to speak to people about what they can be instead of what they are. Come on now. There's a funny thing. Proverbs 18:21 says, The power of the tongue, or the tongue holds the power of life and death. Those who love it will eat its fruit. What do you want to eat a year from now? Do you want to eat the same mediocrity that you're speaking over a man's life because he's mediocre now? Or if you want to see him rise, can become more than he was and get to eat that for breakfast. Mm-hmm. Are you hearing me? Yeah. See, we have a supernatural ability to help our brothers rise to become something more than they are. Y'all turn to Acts 4, 36. There. Is everybody in Acts 4, 36? yeah. yeah. Well, not everybody is, but I'm not. There. He will rock you. (laughs) Four thirty-six. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means "son of encouragement." Anybody have another translation? Say something different. What you got? The exhorter. The exhorter. Cody, you get a new American standard. What's it say? Uh, So the
1: same the Apostle, which was translated translated
0: means sons of encouragement. Sons of encouragement. Some translations say consolation. Exhortation, consolation, encouragement. This is because there's a Greek word in this text that people don't understand. And the Greek word is periklesias. It's where you it's a derivative of perikletos. It means to teach, right? So we say to teach could be to encourage. We say to teach could be to exhort. Uh, to teach could be all kind of things. Of course, these men were not Greek. He was a Levite. What did Levites speak? Hebrew. Hebrew. They could read it. They could write it. They certainly prayed in it. Bar in Hebrew means son. Nava means to Prophesy. Is prophecy encouragement? Yes. Is prophecy exhortation? Yes. Could prophecy be consolation? Yes. This man was the son, uh, meaning he acted like a prophet. You see Barnabas all over the scripture doing this, and I'd like to, to encourage you that you can imitate it. Look at Acts 9. Let's read verse 26. When he, and he here is Paul, when he came to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were afraid of him, not believing that he really was a disciple. How do you think uh, Paul was feeling at that point? But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles. He told them how Saul was on his journey and had seen the Lord. He goes on. Who took him? Who brought him? Who vouched for him? See, apparently Barnabas could look into a man and see potential that others didn't see. They were all afraid because they knew what the man had been. What had the man been? Murderer. A killer. A murderer. A religious zealot. The kind of man that drug men and women off to prison. The kind of man that stood by the coats of the men who murdered Stephen. That's what he had been. But Barnabas saw what he could be. So he took him and brought him and vouched for him. Come on now, what would happen if you could look at a man and tell what kind of man he could be and you brought him into your life and you brought him to meet with others and you spoke for him and said, no, this guy's had an experience. He can be different. Give him a chance. Now they may not listen. Did they listen to him? <laughs> they said, you know, it may be But let's send him off somewhere else. His (laughs) ministry is anywhere else but here. You know? Turn with me to Acts 11. Look at verse 22. News of this reached the ears of the church at Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he arrived and saw the evidence of God's grace, he was glad and encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. He was a good man. Full of the Holy Spirit and faith. And a great number of people were brought to the Lord. Sounds like Barnabas doing just fine, doesn't it? Verse 25. Then Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he found him, he
1: brought him
0: to Antioch. So for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people. See, Barnabas was already a man with a reputation that could be trusted. He was Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus. But he was such a prophet, such an encouragement, he could see God's will before it sprang into being. And so he could see something in Paul. The others knew what Paul had been, and they just thought he was too much trouble, too hot to handle, you know. Your ministry's got to be, I don't know, anywhere but wherever I am. (laughs) <laughs> but Barnabas did something different. He was constantly reaching out, constantly pulling to. He was constantly saying, you know what? You may not want to work with him, but I will work with him. You gave me Antioch, right? Well, I want this man to work beside me. Mm-hmm. He took him on. He trained him, so to speak. Now, we think Paul fell from the sky, right? I mean, there's, there's Jesus, there's the Virgin Mary, and then there's the
1: oh, the
0: apostle Paul. But I assure you, he is a regular guy. And what happens if there is no Barnabas in his life? What if every group of Christians he goes to meet are scared of him? What if everywhere he goes, people remind him of what he was instead of what he could be? Maybe we don't have a New Testament. Hmm? Now let's get out of the New Testament for a minute. What happens if your brothers in this room cannot count on you to see in them what they can't be? What if they can only count on you to announce what they are today? Then we've condemned ourselves to wherever we're at right now. But if you can look into Charlie's eyes and see how he might finish this race. If Charlie can look into Mario's eyes and see what the man can become. If Alicia can dare to believe what God says about her and Larissa can encourage it. Man, there is no limit. This is how we get to immeasurably more than you could ask for or imagine. This is how the church becomes truly astounding instead of completely measurable. you understand what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. Some churches know exactly what they're capable of because they have an account balance. They know exactly what they're capable of because they've taken a census. I say the church of the living God will never stop surprising you if you simply dare to believe it. Is there a person in here that two years ago thought that this year we'd go to 21 countries as a church? Mm -hmm. Is there a person in here that thought in the first six months of the year we could spend $62,000 on missions? Mm -hmm. I mean, anybody?
1: Mm
0: -hmm. I got to tell you, there's nobody in the church more in the know than me, and it has surpassed my every expectation. And I'm telling Matthew every time we talk, if he did that from then till now, what about from now until then? See, we need to dare to believe that He can do anything through us. Look at 12.25. When Barnabas and Saul had finished their mission, they returned from Jerusalem, taking with them John, also called Mark. When you think of John Mark, you think of the boy who turned back, don't you? I know I do. The 13th chapter is a pretty pretty difficult chapter. Look at the 9th verse. Then Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked straight at Elimus and said, "You are a child of the devil and the enemy of it." I would say that, that Saul was kind of finding his uh, his confidence in the Lord, wouldn't you? I mean, you look at a man and say uh, darkness is going to come upon you and you'll be blind, and it does. I would say that's a glowing endorsement that you're discerning correctly, huh? You know who didn't like uh, the thirteenth chapter very much? John Mark. I bet it scared you. You know, I mean, is it all that unusual to get in a little bit over your head and maybe not have as much trust as you thought you had? Has nobody's ever been there? You were never the great man of God that stepped out and then fell right on your face because I've been that guy many, many times. We have a, a choice then. You know, you could be forever the guy that prophesied it was not true. Right? Anybody in here ever got one of those wrong? Where's David? I prophesied to David. He would have a wife and children. I got that part right. The problem is, is I saw him in a certain color shirt in a certain place. Now, I had that shirt. He didn't have it. (laughs) That part couldn't have been right. You know? So I could forever be the guy that cannot prophesy the correct color of a shirt. Right? That guy's so blind spiritually, he cannot even get the color of a shirt right. That, That could be what defines me. But praise God, I had some people around me Because, hey, that may not have been right. But, you know, he was encouraged that he would have a wife and family, and he does. There's got to be some movement in the body of Christ to admire our brothers. To look and say, it's true. Spence may not have arrived yet, but did you see where he started and where he is now? Somebody's got to be able to praise God for these kind of things. Somebody has to be able to go, you know what? I'm beginning to believe God can not only do it for somebody, He can do it for this body him to into being. Yeah. So by the time we get to the 14th chapter and the 12th verse, something is happening. The people in this Greek town say, you know Barnabas? Barnabas, he's like Zeus. And Paul? Paul is like Hermes. They said this because Paul was the chief speaker. I still want you to get this imagery. Is Zeus above Hermes or is Hermes above Zeus? In the Greek pantheon, Zeus is the top. And who did they say was like Zeus? Barnabas. But Barnabas apparently not only could see the potential in somebody, he was not threatened by it as they came into their own. He didn't feel the need to stand here and push them there and make sure that they never surpassed him. In fact, he seemed to just kind of melt into the background and allow the other man to do what God had called him to do. By the 15th chapter, a sharp dispute breaks out between Paul and Barnabas. You can read about that in the 36th through 41st verse. And what happens there is they get in a fight. I know that's surprising. In the Bible, they got in a fight. Yeah, men are men. We feel passionately about things, you know? And when you want to accomplish something for the Lord, sometimes... You just see things differently. And God is big enough to do that. Because Paul takes Silas and Timothy. And he goes off and conquers Macedonia for Jesus. But Barnabas goes and picks up John Mark. He said, well, you picked a loser there. There's no record of them ever going on a missionary trip. There's no record of any miracles. There's no record of anything. Of course, there is that record that we call uh, the second gospel. And John Mark wrote it. See, Barnaba had the ability to look into somebody that was a failure today and see a success tomorrow. Yeah. If there's anything that the church body needs, it's that. We need the ability to see what a man can be if you mix in the power of the Holy Ghost. We need the ability to even, not just encourage, but maybe you've got to step out there and prophesy. Maybe you have to speak something that cannot be seen today. But you believe God is going to reveal tomorrow. You know why? It proves he's enough. It means that El Shaddai is among us. And he's bigger than your weakness. Come on church, stand to your feet. I don't know how biblical it is to stand and preach with a belly full of worms. i was just happy an
1: angel didn't get.